Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. When I was growing up, every time I left the house, my mother would say to me, be careful. And of course, I would say, yes, mother, thinking to myself, how many times is she going to tell me that? When I got a little older, I actually got uh, something like a motorcycle. And without fail, every time I left the house, sure enough, we went through this little ritual. My mother would say, be careful. And I would say, dutifully, yes, mother, wondering when the day would come when she would not have to tell me that anymore. Then I got a driver's license and a car. Started driving when I was 15, learner's permit, Florida. And every time I left to get in that car, my mother would say, be careful. And as a teenager, I remember feeling like I had heard that message too many times. And I kept wondering, how often does a person have to hear something? I mean, every time, be careful. Then I became an adult, and all of a sudden I understood. Children need to be repeatedly told things. Then I became a pastor, and I really understood. People need to be told things repeatedly. As a matter of fact, spiritually, we need to hear spiritual truth over and over and over again. We need to hear it until, well, until what? Well, interestingly enough, there is a passage of Scripture where it teaches that we need to repeatedly hear spiritual truth, and it tells us we need to hear it until a certain thing happens. And that's what I'm interested in. So will you join with me in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time at verse 12. Peter says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of those things, though you know, and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him 
from excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him in the holy mountain. And so we have a prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the coming star, morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This passage opens with Peter saying emphatically and repeatedly that we need to be repeatedly reminded of spiritual truth. He begins in verse 12 where he says, For this reason. I'm going to come back to that little phrase later. But he says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. I'm going to come back to that later. Though you know them and are established in the present truth. Now, whatever it is he wants us to be, remember, he emphatically declares, I'm going to remind you of it and says, look, you're not ignorant of what I have in mind. It's not that you don't know them. You do know them. Furthermore, you are established in them, which means to be fixed, to be set fast. They were firm in what they knew about these things. Matter of fact, he calls it a present truth, meaning you know it now. So he's saying, I'm not trying to tell you something new. What I'm going to tell you, you've heard before. What I just told you, you've heard before. I know you know it, but you need to be reminded of it. And that is what he is driving home. So he is insistent that they know this at the moment. Now, some have suggested that what he's going to get into in a minute in the second chapter and even in the third chapter, is the fact that there were scoffers and doubters concerning prophetic truth, particularly the second coming of Christ. And so he may be setting up the idea, I want to remind you of this because there are some who are denying this. At any rate, he says you need to be reminded. The truths about which he has just spoken are so important that he would not neglect these truths, and he says always he would remind them of them. Reminders are important. They reinforce things. They reestablish things. They act as a motivator of things. Someone has said readers of this letter knew the truth, and were established in it, but that was no guarantee that they would always remember the truth and apply it. So when truth recedes to the background of awareness, it is not far from being lost altogether. So Peter is just emphatically declaring, 
I am reminding you of something that you already know. Now look at the next verse. He says, yes, I think it is right so long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I shall put off this tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, the word tent is a figure of speech for his body. And he's saying, I live in a tent. This body is like a tent. I live in it, but tents are not permanent buildings. They are temporary and transitory. A good figure for our body and our residency on the earth. It's temporary. So he says, I'm living in this tent now. And so as long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I'm going to put off the tent. Now, what does he mean by shortly? Well, the scholars estimate that when he wrote this, he was probably about 60 years old, and lifespan in those days wasn't as long as it is today. So uh, he is saying, I'm, I'm not going to be around forever, so while I'm here, I'm going to remind you. Uh, now, he says, uh, I'm going to strike the tent someday in 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to move on somewhere else. So that tent is another good illustration of the fact that when I move out of this tent, I'm going to move somewhere else. To illustrate that grammatically, death is not a period. Death is a comma. There's more to come. Death is not the period. So, and furthermore, he says, the Lord told me I was going to die before he got back. And sure enough, in John chapter 20, the Lord predicted that Peter would die and gave him some idea of how it was going to be. But his point now is this, as long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to remind you. And our point is, you need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded. As if that's not enough, he says in verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my departure or after I am dead, after my decease. I'm going to see it that you still know even after I'm gone. Now this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. He's emphatic that we need to be reminded. I know you already know it. You need to be reminded. You're established in it. I know, but you need to be reminded. It's a present truth with you. It's, you know it now, but you need to be reminded. As long as I'm in this tent, you need to be reminded. And when I'm gone, I'm going to see to it that you are reminded. Boy, he is really making the point that we need to be reminded. And we need to be repeatedly told so that we remember spiritual truth. He has a particular truth in mind, which I'll get to in a minute. But right now, I want you to notice he says, I've made preparation for you to know this after I leave. Now, how did he do that? Well, I think we're tempted to say he wrote a letter. So he's going to see to it that we remember. That's a possibility. But the way this is worded, I'm going to make 
something available to you in the future. And so some have concluded that this is not a reference to 2 Peter. It may be a reference to the Gospel of Mark. There is a tradition, meaning it was written after the New Testament, that what Mark wrote down was Peter's preaching. And he may be referring to that. I'm going to remind you even in the Gospel of Mark. At any rate, he is saying, I'm doing it now and I'm going to do it later. I'm going to see to it that you remember. Knowledgeable believers can and do slumber and sleep, relax and rest. They need to be aroused. He says, stir up, which is done by reminding them that they are temporarily living in a tent, which will someday be taken down. They will either enter into the kingdom abundantly or they will be barren as they enter into the kingdom. So in light of that, we need to be stirred up. We need to be awakened that we not slumber and sleep spiritually. Now, so far Peter has made one little point, and that is you need to be reminded. My question is, reminded of what? Now that takes me back to verse 12. For this reason, that means, based on everything I just said in verses 1 to 11, but particularly verse 11, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ah, Peter says, in light of the fact that the Lord is coming back and we're going to enter the kingdom, and we're going to do that with nothing to show for our life, or we're going to do it abundantly, you need to be reminded of the return of the Lord. And that's what he means in verse 12 when he says, remind you always of these things. That these things is referring to what he said just prior to this, but particularly verse 11. So he is saying, look, I want to remind you repeatedly, the Lord is coming back. Now he's going to talk about the fact that the Lord is coming back in some detail. The first thing he says is in the first part of verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, look, I've told you that the Lord's coming back. That's not speculation. That's not, as one author says, cleverly concocted myths. That's true. Now, I know there are mockers, he talks about them later in the book, who think this is fiction, but it's not a fable. It's not fiction. It is a fact. So he says in the latter part of verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So it's not a fable, it's a fact, and the reason I know it's a fact is because, well, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, who is we, and when did they have this experience? Well, it is obvious by what he goes on to say in this passage that he's talking about the transfiguration. That is beyond dispute. That's very clear. 
So the we is Peter, James, and John. Three of the apostles got to see his majesty. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 16, the last verse, and in the first part of chapter 17. So verse 17 in this chapter says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his voice, which came from heaven when we were with him in the holy mount. So verses 17 and 18 make it unmistakable that he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. That is when, in a real sense, they saw the second coming of Christ. Now, we don't have time to look at that passage, but in Matthew 16 he says, some of you standing here are not going to see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And immediately it talks about the transfiguration. So obviously the transfiguration is somehow connected to the second coming of Christ. And the the connection is we saw his majesty. We saw what he was like when he comes back. And so that experience of him being transformed into his divine state on the Mount of Transfiguration says this demonstrated to me that this was not a fable, this was not a myth, It was fact. Now, he says, uh, I want to remind you of the second coming of Christ. It's not a fable, it's a fact. Then he adds on top of that, verse 19, we also have a prophetic word that that confirmed all of this. Ah, he says the second coming of Christ is not a fable, it's a fact. We saw his transfiguration, and on top of that, we had it prophesied in the word of God. So what he says, what we as apostles saw was a confirmation of what the scriptures predicted all along. So he says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Our experience confirmed that the Lord is coming back. We saw him transfigured, and we are sure, we are guaranteed that the Lord is coming back. All right. You with me so far? I've said two things. Can you tell me what they are? This is a test. I've said you need to be... You need to be reminded. You need to be reminded of? Boy, that was slow. (laughs) You need to be reminded the Lord is coming back. Why? Well, he says, for this reason, because when the Lord does come back and we enter the kingdom, you're either going to enter it abundantly, you're going to have a lot of rewards, or you're going to be barren. So I need to constantly remind you that the Lord is coming back because that affects the way you live your life. Now, he has a third point in this passage, and it's really interesting. He gives the result 
of being reminded of the return of the Lord. So look at verse 19 again. He says, you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Now, this is a verse packed with phrases that need to be unpacked and explained. For example, he says you need to heed, meaning you need to turn your mind's attention to this. You need to devote yourself to. That's the meaning of that word. Then he says, this prophetic word is like a light that shines into a dark place. Oh, is that rich. Dark means dry, dark, dirty, dismal. Matter of fact, they have found, archaeologists have found that word in an ancient inscription, and it's used of a dark funeral color. Dark, dismal is probably the good translation of the word, according to one Greek scholar. So, he is saying, you live in a dark, dismal place. Is that true? Have you read the paper lately? Have you watched television lately? This is a dark, dismal place of all that's going on. Imagine somebody walking in a bar and just killing 12 people. And it's getting closer and closer to home. Wow. Surely this is a dark day. Well, he says the prophetic scripture is a light to us. In other words, the prophetic word that Jesus is coming back is like a light that shines in a dark place so we can see where we're going. We can know where we are. But what is really fascinating is he says, until the day dawns and the morning star shines in your heart. Now these phrases are references to the Lord. Matter of fact, the day. It says until the day. And he's talking about what the scripture calls the day of the Lord, which is the day the Lord comes back and sets up this kingdom on the earth. He talks about it dawning. And dawning is that early in the morning when that first bit of light shines. You know, you just get that first little sliver of light breaking through the darkness. And the morning star is another reference to the Lord. But what's interesting is, All this truth about the Lord coming back and being a light needs to dawn in your heart. Ah, that is the answer to the question I posed at the beginning. We need to be reminded of the second coming of Christ until when? How many times do we have to be reminded? And the answer is, until you get it. Now that's my way of translating, until it dawns on you. Till it dawns on your heart. Wow, the Lord's coming back. And I'm going to stand before him to be judged. And that result of that judgment is going to be 
that I get rewards or I don't get rewards. So I don't need to look at the dark day. I need to look at the light of the fact that the Lord is coming back. So when the truth of the future day dawns in your heart, you can no longer be disturbed or satisfied with the corruption that is in the world. In this dark, dismal world, we can look at God's lamp and keep our eye on it until our heart is shining with its truth. If you don't, you will be tripped up by the darkness. So, this part of the passage answers the question, how long am I going to have to hear this repeated word? Until it dawns on you and you live according to it. Now, he's not quite done. He says in verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So he says, look, we got a prophetic word. That's the light. And he says, it's not of any private interpretation. Now, what he means by that is simply this. No prophecy came from the prophet's own interpretation. It came from the Lord which is what he says in verse 21. So he's saying, look, we know, we have it confirmed that the Lord is coming back, and that's because those prophetic truths about the coming of the Lord wasn't something some prophet dreamed up. It's not his own interpretation. It's fact. Now, in this passage, we're not talking about interpretation. It's a... Uh, that has a special meaning for us. We're talking about authentication. So all he's saying is that prophets didn't dream this up. They got it from God. Look at verse 21. So uh, there is a divine origin of this prophecy. So the prophets didn't make up this prophecy. Prophecy was not their personal interpretation. They didn't speak their own words. They spoke the word of God. So he ends this passage by emphatically declaring, we have a word from God that Jesus is coming back. And so we need to be constantly reminded of that because of the way it affects us now and the way it will affect us in the future. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that preacher of the 19th century in London, had an eloquent way about him. And he summed up this by saying, The Bible is the writing of the living God. Each letter was penned with an almighty finger. Each word in it dropped from the everlasting lips. Moses was employed to write his histories with his fiery pen, but God guided the pen. David touched his heart and let sweet psalms of melody drop from his fingers, but God moved the hand over the living strings. Solomon sang canticles of love and gave forth words of wisdom, but God directed his lips and made the preacher eloquent. If I follow the thundering Nahum and the noise of the panting horses, or Habakkuk when he saw the tents of Cushim in affliction, if I read Malachi when the earth is burned like an oven, if I turn to the smooth pages of John who tells of love, or the rugged chapters of Peter who speaks of fire devouring God's enemy, if I turn aside to Jude who launches forth anthems upon the foes of God, 
Where, wherever I find the Lord speaking, it is His voice, not man's. The words of the Eternal, the Invisible, the Almighty, the Jehovah of the Ages. This Bible came from His heart, and when I see it, I seem to hear a voice spring up from it saying, I am the book of God. Read me. I am God's writing. Love me. In short, the Bible is the word of God. So we can be assured that the Lord is coming back. We have God's word on it. One more verse. He says in verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the saying, basically, something similar to verse 20, only it's expanding it and clearly saying, look, these men who wrote Scripture were being moved by the Holy Spirit. They wrote the Word of God, not their own thoughts alone. So, the interesting thing here is they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting word because it was used in the ancient world of ships being moved and carried along by wind. It's even used that way in Acts chapter 29. So that as these men wrote, they were being moved by what they wrote, like a ship is being moved by the wind hitting its sails. And that's his picture of the fact that God wrote this book. Another eloquent preacher of a day, by, day, uh, day gone by, Donald Ray Barnhouse, who was in the 20th century, wrote this about this passage. He said, in my student days in Europe, I left France where I was studying for several years in the university and went down to Athens to live for several months in connection with one of my graduate courses in Greek archaeology. At the time, I was working all day, every day, in the great museum in Athens. During the day, my young wife and our baby of a year spent a great deal of time in the courtyard until my day's work was done, and then the three of us would go to the Acropolis with our picnic supper and walk along the great ruins and look over the majestic scene. Now, if you know anything about Athens, you know that there is a huge hill, and on it was the Parthenon. And what he's saying is he... Uh, and his wife and small baby would go up to that Parthenon and have this panoramic view. And of course, what they saw was the sea. So Barnhouse says, um, one evening I was sitting on the stone of the western summit looking over the bay of Salamis with a tip of Corinth on the far distant horizon. I had in my hand one of the ancient Greek historians, and I was reading the account of the battle of Salamis, for beneath us on that blue water had been fought one of the most decisive battles in world history. Boy, 
This is a battle we don't know much about. Most people don't know much about. We know a lot about it from the history. But this is one of the most important battles of all of history. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, there the navy of Greece had destroyed the great Persian fleet and ended the threat of the Oregon against the West for several hundred years. Now, if you know anything at all about world history, you know that at the time, Persia was the world empire. And they brought this massive fleet against Greece. Had they won it, won it, then the Orient would have dominated Europe. But the Greeks defeated the Persians. And therefore, Europe spoke Greek and not Farsi. I mean, that is literally what happened. Uh, modern Iran <clears throat> is ancient Persia. So he's sitting on top of this hill. He's overlooking the bay, and that's where the battle was, and that's what he says. Then he says, the historians told us how one of uh, the ships was equipped with sharp metal and it sheared away the oars of the enemy vessels. So what the Greeks did, these Persians had boats with oars in them. That's where they powered them. And the Greeks had this boat with sharp knives, I guess, on the boat, and they just went along the side of the ship and they sheared all the oars off. So now this boat's going in circles because it's only got oars on one side. And then he said, the slaves on the other side of the vessel kept rowing so that they turned around in circles. And the iron blades then sheared away the oars on the opposite side. And the ship lay helpless before the wind carried exactly where the wind wished it to be carried. In my memory, there was this faint stirring. It seemed I remembered the Greek words of a ship being carried away by wind whenever the word wind wished to carry it. Suddenly I remembered there was a passage in the New Testament. I had my Greek Testament in my pocket and I opened it searching for the phrase. Then I remembered the words of Peter and turned to them. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, these men did not initiate the writing of Scripture. They were moved by the Holy Spirit like those ships were moved with, the ships without oars were moved by the wind wherever the wind wanted to take them. And so these men writing were moved by the Holy Spirit, not where they wanted to go, but wherever the Holy Spirit wanted them to go. So Peter's point is you can rely on the account of the transfiguration because God spoke. And you can rely on the scripture because it wasn't written by human authors. It was written as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, one more time. We got this. What's Peter saying in this passage? Number one, you need to be reminded. You got it, music to my ears. Reminded of what? 
oh, music to my ears until the return of the Lord. Why? Why is that so important? You need to be reminded about the Lord's return until what happens? It dawns on you. And you can be sure that it's going to happen because we have God's word on it. Now that means that you should be hearing, heeding, and applying all these things Peter said in verses 1 to 11. So I want to remind you of the kinds of things you ought to be doing. You ready? Yes. Go back to first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 5. Also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your virtue knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. That is what you should be doing. Amen. Growing. Why? Because that's going to determine how you enter the kingdom. You're either going to enter it abundantly, meaning with an abundance of reward, or you're going to enter it barren, meaning you don't get any reward. So if that's the case, you ought to be growing spiritually and you need to be constantly reminded that the Lord is coming back until it dawns on your heart and you start doing what he said and that's what he said you ought to be doing. Yes. Got it? Yes. This is a fantastic passage of Scripture. But you've got to get the flow of the thought and put it together. And that simply means believers need to be reminded of the truth that they already know concerning the coming of Christ. Because it is a truth which needs to become a reality in your heart until it begins to direct your life. Got it? I want to conclude by saying three things. Number one, we have a word from God. Amen? Amen. Is this book the word of God? Yes. And we need to believe it. Amen. Now some people look at it and don't believe it. So it's not just having it, it's believe. believing it. You can have it and not believe it. I heard the story of a man once on Long Island who purchased a barometer. When the instrument arrived at his home, he was extremely disappointed to find that it indicated a needle that appeared to be stuck. It was stuck on hurricane. After shaking the barometer very vigorously several times, he sat down and wrote a scorching letter to the store which he had from which he had purchased it. The following morning, on the way to his office in New York, he mailed the letter. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find not only the barometer missing, but so was his house. It was destroyed by a hurricane. So he looked at the barometer, he had it, but he didn't believe it. So you've got a Bible, it's a word from God, and you need to believe it. Second thing I want to say 
As the Word says that Jesus is coming back and we need to live in light of that. So we live in a dark day morally and spiritually. So what we need is a light that says, ah, I know how this story's going to end. I read the last chapter of the book. And the last chapter of the Bible says, even so come, Lord Jesus. So when you see the darkness of the day, don't get despondent or in despair. Just remember, the dawning of the day is coming. And I need to, in the meantime, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so I'm prepared for his appearing. Third thing I want to say, you've heard all this before, right? Is this the first time you heard the Lord's coming back? Of course not. So what do you need? To be reminded. And that's how he starts the passage. You need to be reminded. All right. You know, my mother was right. As much as it aggravated me as a child, and worse as a teenager, I discovered my mother was right. And looking back, Apparently, it worked because I never had an accident the whole time I was a teenager. As a matter of fact, I was trying to figure this out, and as much as, as far as I can remember, the first accident I ever had, I've only had a couple, I've been driving over 50 years, well over 50 years, and, and I've only had a couple that were my fault. I've had a couple people run into me that wasn't my fault. But uh, the first one I had, I think I was 28 years old. So hearing this for 18 years served me well. And the first accident I had, uh, I had, was on a country road. There wasn't anything for miles and miles, and I got lost. And I stopped, and I thought, well, I should have turned on that last road. And I kicked it in reverse and started to back up. And I didn't listen to my mother. A car had pulled behind me, and I backed into it. So you know what I learned? You need to be reminded. (laughs) And just as we need to be reminded to brush our teeth and floss our teeth and eat veggies and exercise and all those kind of things, we need to be reminded of spiritual truth. The Lord's coming back. We have God's word on it. And we need to live in light of that spiritual truth. Father, Thank you for your patience. We confess our impatience. Thank you for your reminders, and we confess we don't always look at them or listen to them. But thank you for giving us your word and the constant reminder that your son is coming back. Lord, help us to live in light of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.